This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bell. Dr. Bell is an easy-to-use mobile and web solution that truly simplifies the way you do medical billing. Join over 1,500 physicians already using our billing software to save time, boost productivity, and earn more. Visit drbill.ca. That's dr-bill.ca for more information. The 2019 novel coronavirus outbreak that began in China has spread in humans both within the region and internationally, with the World Health Organization recently declaring the situation a public health emergency of international concern. What should Canada's healthcare practitioners and the public be doing to protect themselves from infection, and how is this outbreak likely to play out internationally? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and these are some of the questions I've asked of three infectious disease specialists working within the University Health Network in Toronto, Dr. Alain Vaisman, Dr. Susie Hota, and Dr. Isaac Bogosh. I've reached them today in Toronto. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for having us on. Okay, so I think we can start by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you're involved with Canada's response to the novel coronavirus outbreak. My name is Alan Vaisman. I'm an adult infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. I also work as an infection control physician as well as hospital epidemiologist at my hospital. And my role in the management of the novel coronavirus is to help manage our hospital's response to the virus, including screening and testing of patients. So I'm an infectious diseases specialist and the medical director of infection prevention and control at University Health Network in Toronto. And uh, I've been involved at the hospital level co-leading our preparedness and planning for the novel coronavirus, as well as previously for other uh, emerging infectious diseases. My name is Isaac Bogosh. I'm an infectious disease physician based out of the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital. And uh, my role in this has been to model the potential spread of the infection from China to elsewhere in the world to see where this virus is likely to show up through uh, commercial air travel. So Alain, tell us briefly about the 2019 novel coronavirus, where it originated, how it spread and what's known to date. Uh, we now believe that the virus originated in uh, Wuhan in China, in Hubei province. The current theory is that the virus originated due to contact between humans and animals, specifically an animal in a market that was frequented by people in Wuhan. The origins is believed to be a bat uh, at this time, but there, it's unclear what the intermediate or, uh, animal is between bat and human. We believe that the organism is transmitted through large droplet transmission, similar to other respiratory viruses. And that's what we currently believe based on uh, what we know about other coronaviruses and the spread from human to human seen now. We know now that there's more than 17,000 cases that have been documented, the vast majority of which have occurred in the origin of the outbreak in Wuhan. And as of this, uh, as, as of this time, the virus has spread to numerous countries, and there have been four confirmed cases in Canada. Okay, so when you say at this time, we're talking on February the 3rd, and you've talked about four confirmed cases in Canada. Can you tell us about where those cases are? Currently, there are three documented cases in Ontario and one that was documented in British Columbia. What we know about the cases that were confirmed in Canada is that uh, all of them originated due to contact in Wuhan, and all of them were relatively mild cases of, in, of the infection. 
and all of them had proper uh, identification and isolation that were promptly done by the health agencies in the respective provinces. When you say confirmed, how is um, their infection confirmed? Uh, the virus is confirmed by sending uh, secretions from the respiratory tract to, at this time, public health agencies, including the provincial lab as well as the national micro lab. So, for example, in Ontario, we would send a nasopharyngeal swab as well as a throat swab to have molecular testing done in the central lab at Public Health Ontario, and that is currently confirmed by the national lab in Winnipeg. Can you tell us an estimate of how many tests have been sent in Canada so far? I don't have an answer to that, but the provincial health labs, uh, many of them are reporting how many tests have been done on their provincial health lab website. So I believe Ontario has started to do that, and British Columbia might be doing that as well. So they're being transparent with how many tests are being ordered. Susie, there's been some panic in Canada and globally about this outbreak. If I'm a family doc in Ottawa and today a patient calls me saying that they recently returned home from a vacation in China via Pearson Airport in Toronto and now they feel unwell and should they come in to the practice, what should I tell them? I think that's a great question and there are multiple layers to it. And probably my first question to that individual would be how sick is this patient? You know, clarify how sick they are and whether it is appropriate for them to come into the family practice or if they need to be assessed in the hospital environment right off the bat. Um, so once that's clarified, I think uh, the other main thing is what is the concern about having been exposed in the areas where the outbreak is occurring um, and where there's the highest concentration of cases? Um, so what is that risk? And as opposed to this being some other more run-of-the-mill type of respiratory virus that we see this time of year. So the questions that would help clarify that is understanding what the period of travel was, so what the exact dates were um, to the different areas that this individual may have uh, been to in China and knowing exactly where it was in China as well. And there's some excellent resources online that help to keep you up to date on what's happening in different cities and different parts of China to help uh, make that decision. Um, and then what did they do while they were there? Were they attending large gatherings? Were they visiting any wet markets? Were they going into hospital or in healthcare at all? Did they have sick contacts? That would be another really important question to ask to clarify risk. And then once that's been obtained, um, the next part is understanding what the symptoms are. Are they compatible with this infection? So typically patients who've had this novel coronavirus have presented with fever and cough and sometimes shortness of breath. Other symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection can be present and things like myalgias and, and headache is also uh, reported. Um, so making sure that you ask those questions uh, are really important. And so taking that all together, if they're able to be assessed in the family uh, doctor's office, then there are some instructions that, that should always be conveyed to the patient before they attend to that clinic visit. They should be told to do good hand hygiene and put on a mask when they enter into the office area. And of course, the family doctor's office has to be prepared with the right kind of personal protective equipment and trained to deal with, uh, with patients um, who would require those additional precautions. And if they're seen there, public health officials can actually help with coordinating testing if it's warranted. But otherwise, if there's any doubt as to whether that can be executed, then the patient should be sent to the emergency department with clear instructions to the eMERGE, the receiving hospital, as to what to do uh, and what's coming um, to their doorstep. 
That's very clear. So say I'm not in my practice trained to use the right protective equipment and to deal with a patient of this type, and I send them to the emergency department and they're dealt with properly there, what should be done if a patient screens positive? So in the emergency departments, you know, these questions are asked to try and clarify the locations of the patient's travel, the dates, as well as the symptoms. And what happens immediately if someone screens positive, they're taken as quickly as possible into a negative pressure room, which is designed for patients who require airborne precautions. And any healthcare worker that will then be coming in to get more information and to assess the patient will have to put on a fit-tested N95 respirator, eye protection, um, a glove and a gloves and gown, and um, they would also have to, of course, clean their hands prior to to doing all that and entering the room. In that event, more information is is usually obtained. The infection prevention and control teams are alerted, and we help to guide um, further decision making as to testing and and what else uh, we need to to do clinically for the patient. So they need to be triaged right away so that the appropriate management happens right from the start. So Alain told us that uh, there are just four confirmed cases in Canada at this time, but it seems sometimes from news updates that the coronavirus is everywhere and health professionals like everyone else may get their information from the lay media. Where can health care workers and the public find the most reliable resources to guide their behavior and practice? This is a really important one because uh, you're absolutely right. There have been false reports and misinformation, and that can be quite damaging um, in terms of getting people fearful about things that are not actually occurring. Uh, the lay media in Canada has actually made great efforts to get qualified experts to comment on the situation. But that said, sometimes you know things don't always come across and uh, there can be time delays in getting accurate information. I direct people to the WHO website as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada, and there are good landing pages that will help to navigate you to what you're looking for uh, for information. Um, all the ministries of health as well have uh, also got their sources of information. In Ontario, we have a web page on the Ontario.ca website that you can get to and get more local information as well. Uh, but also, I, I find that what's been great about this situation is that publications are coming out quite rapidly um, and peer-reviewed publica publications on the clinical characteristics, the epidemiology of what's happening. And so there are certain organizations, for example, the Infectious Diseases Society of America has an excellent resource center and a landing page with links to some of these primary articles for clinicians to look at, but also to other um, appropriate websites like the Society of Healthcare Epidemiologists of America, for example, uh, that are really helpful. What advice should we be giving to our concerned patients? For example, if they ask, should I wear a mask in public? Mm -hmm. So many people are just looking for something they can do to, to help prevent the spread or to prevent getting sick. And at this point in time, there's really no reason for everybody in Canada to be wearing masks when out in public. Masks can be helpful, but only in certain scenarios. So we know this kind of respiratory virus is usually transmitted through large droplets that are released when you cough or sneeze and you're infected with this kind of virus. And those large respiratory virus particles can travel not that far, so up to about two meters in, in general. And um, beyond that, if so if you're in that zone, you may be exposed and inhale those respiratory virus particles, or it might get on surfaces that you touch and then you infect yourself. So knowing that 
kind of mode of transmission, you can see how masks can actually be a useful barrier to get you protect your mucous membranes from um, these these droplets. So we use masks in healthcare settings when healthcare workers are seeing patients who have these respiratory viruses because of the kind of close face-to-face -to -face contact they're going to have with the patient who's infected. It's also helpful when symptomatic patients come into healthcare settings because there are a whole bunch of other vulnerable patients nearby and that barrier is going to protect others around them from being exposed to the droplets. But outside of that, just wearing it in public in, in free spaces, there's really no evidence that's going to help. And in fact, it can you know lead to some negative consequences. Um, people might get uh, afraid when they see things like that. The people wearing the mask might have a false sense of security and can contaminate themselves, you know, by touching their faces more by adjusting masks, for example. Um, what I would say is everyone should be washing their hands very frequently and trying not to touch their face. And that simple measure right there will reduce your risk. There have been estimates circulating about case fatality rates, uh, comparing with SARS, for example, and patients do get anxious about the severity of the illness they're likely to contract if they were exposed. Is it useful at all to communicate case fatality rates, infection rates, etc., at this stage? That's a great question. I think it's very useful from a clinical standpoint and from an epidemiologic standpoint because there are various scenarios that can play out. Um, knowing just how badly this affects the individual who's infected is, is important for obvious reasons. We want to be able to provide the right health care for people who are going to be facing this infection. It also does tell us how much we need to concentrate on planning in our intensive care units and the higher level of care that can be provided for people who require um, this support. So it is important in many ways from a planning perspective to try and project what that is. The challenge is early in an outbreak, we usually have fairly inaccurate measures of case fatality because our focus is often on identifying uh, the people who end up, you know, getting to the point where they need hospital assessment. And there's often a large pool of people with much milder symptoms that we don't even really learn about. So, you know, we tend to overestimate the case fatality early on and uh, and then later on as serological studies are, are implemented in different areas, we get a better sense of what it actually is. So it's helpful. It's not always easy to get an accurate number. And what we don't want is for the public to misinterpret what those numbers are and feel too that they may be deceived as the numbers change over time. Alon, how can we reassure our patients about the measures that Canada has taken to prevent an outbreak like the one that was seen during SARS? I think this is a common topic that comes up, uh, especially for Canadians who remember the experience of SARS and especially in the cities where that uh, SARS was affected by. But the major differences between now and the management of that virus 17 years ago is that the public health infrastructures are much better now. So, for example, the surveillance of patients, the infrastructure within hospitals regarding uh, infection control practice, as well as testing for the virus. So testing now is much more rapidly done than it was done previously, and that has improved the ability for uh, cases to be identified quickly and isolated quickly. And that also means that cases can be can undergo contact tracing very quickly and we can identify who might have been exposed to the index patient. On top of that, communications have been far better. So Canada is in touch not only with agencies across the world, but also the World Health Organization in order to figure out what's going on with the virus, the current spread of the virus, and uh, what Canada needs to do in order to protect itself. 
So I think that's an important reassuring aspect for Canadian patients. And as a result, we haven't seen any transmission events within Canada whatsoever, despite having four confirmed cases. How are you involved in in this uh, communication and transparency that's going on with this outbreak? Our role in infection control is to communicate directly with municipal and provincial health agencies to update them on suspected and confirmed cases. So on the municipal level, the hospital us would let them know about a potential case so that contact tracing can be done. And on a provincial level, we would communicate whether a confirmed case has been found so that everyone is aware about it. The other important aspect is trying to coordinate our efforts in hospitals to make sure that we are consistent in our measures to protect uh, healthcare workers and staff against the virus. So my role there would be to communicate with uh, not only the uh, physicians locally, but also uh, across the province and possibly across the country if that, if that was ever necessary. Who coordinates the international response? Yeah, so the, the international response, now that this has been declared a public health emergency of international concern, a lot of the international coordination will be through the World Health Organization. And certainly uh, that is a very centralized place for data collection, uh, for data distribution, and for coordinating global efforts to, to help combat this infection. They're working very closely with China, but in addition to that, they're also working closely with other countries that are mostly low-resource settings to help them prepare for potentially imported infections. Isaac, what are the possible trajectories for this outbreak, both within Canada and globally? So that's a very challenging question, and I think I always have to preface answering these questions by timestamping it. So it is February the 3rd, 2020. So as of February 3rd, 2020, it's not entirely clear if the massive control efforts in China are going to be successful. The whole goal now is to contain this infection in China, ensure this infection gets under control in China, and limit the subsequent spread of infection to other international destinations. At the same time, you know, we're seeing exported cases to, you know, over a dozen countries. We're seeing small, small but real secondary chains of transmission in other international settings. And while all the efforts are focused on containing this in China now, we still have to be prepared for the possibility that this might not be able to be contained in China and will have further global spread. But as of today, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear what direction this is going to go. Okay. And Elon has said that we have four confirmed cases in Canada, but no person-to-person spread in the country. That's correct. But in but other places, so in uh, Japan, in the United States, and I believe in Thailand, but certainly one other country, there have been reports of person-to-person spread. Again, the public health infrastructure in those countries is very good. And those secondary cases have been detected, have been uh, treated, and have and the appropriate contact tracing has been done to limit subsequent spread. The point is that, you know, can this occur to a larger extent? Can this occur in other countries? Can this occur in countries that don't have the same public health capacity as a place like Germany or Japan? And the answer is, yeah, certainly it's possible. And the whole goal is for these massive control efforts to really reduce the burden of infection in China and and subsequently reduce the 
potential for exported cases elsewhere in the world so that we don't have to combat secondary chains of transmission in other countries. That sounds really reassuring. Are the measures regarding travel restrictions, quarantining, and so on that that other countries have been taking likely to help contain the spread of the infection beyond China, or are they likely to do more overall harm than good? So people have very strong opinions of travel restrictions one way or another. The World Health Organization and, and of course, the international health regulations are, are pretty clear that travel restrictions should not be employed. And, and they highlight the negative consequences of travel restrictions, namely that it can do more harm than good. It can do more harm than good by um, helping with resources to, to essentially combat the epidemic at the source. It can have negative economic ramifications, not just for the country affected, but more broadly, and and, it can, and and there there's the potential for socio-political ramifications as well, not just in the country affected, but but more broadly as well. So, the WHO is pretty clear that travel restrictions should be avoided. Having said that, you know countries are certainly sovereign states and are, are will choose to do uh, what they feel is in their best interest. And in this situation, we've seen many countries enact travel restrictions to China. You know, in the past, travel restrictions have been used to uh, attempt to curtail the spread of different infections. So most recently, the uh, H1N1 influenza pandemic is a great example because there were travel restrictions put in place in, in many settings. And lots of studies afterwards attempted to see how successful those were. And at best, they were able to delay the introduction of the virus by, you know, a few weeks or so. Now, many people will jump on some of this data and some other data and say, you know, travel restrictions don't work. Also, we have to be very careful about the secondary damage of travel restrictions. This could limit the affected country, China, from obtaining appropriate supplies. It could it has tremendous economic uh, and, and perhaps socio-political ramifications as well, not just in the country, but elsewhere in the world. So there's a lot of negative impacts of travel restrictions. But, you know, quite frankly, this is an unprecedented situation. And the degree of travel restrictions already imposed in China by Chinese authorities in the affected areas has never been done. So there's about 50 to 60 million people who are essentially cut off by rail, road, and, and flight. And now other countries are restricting travel to and from China. So it's, it's not entirely clear if this degree of travel restriction will have any effect on the spread of the virus. The optics may appear favorable for some countries to say, look, we're doing something. But, if, but it's not entirely clear if this will actually slow the progression of this virus and the spread of the virus. So I think it's really challenging for us to extrapolate from prior data and from prior examples and apply it to this setting. And I think it's okay to say to the general public and to the medical and scientific community that we're not entirely sure. We don't have all the answers. And certainly I don't think anyone can confidently say that a travel restriction will or will not help in this situation. And it's just, it's really unclear to see what the outcome of these is going to be. And quite frankly, I think we'll know in, in about a week or two 
how effective the Chinese efforts have been, these massive efforts to curtail the infection within China. And uh, we'll see one way or another in the next week or two how, how this unfolds. But currently, I think it's, it's going to be it's very challenging to, to predict. The crystal ball is not clear at all. I've seen some reports on development of a novel coronavirus vaccine. What does that mean, if it's true? So there are efforts to develop a coronavirus vaccine. And these efforts started a while ago in response to SARS and, and MERS uh, epidemics. Now, of course, it takes a long time and a lot of money to develop a vaccine. You have to have appropriate laboratory investigations that move into phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. So I certainly think this is extremely important because this is not going to be the last time we have the emergence of a, of a novel coronavirus. And, you know, in the last 20 years, we've seen three big ones emerge. So we can certainly appreciate that this will happen again. But will this vaccine be readily available for this current epidemic? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that it won't. I mean, we're, we're dealing with an epidemic right now, and I think the vaccine is quite far from practical clinical and public health utility at this point. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop working on it. And yeah, people might remember the Ebola virus epidemic of 2014 in West Africa and how vaccines were rapidly deployed in that epidemic. But I think we have to remember that there was over a decade's worth of work, well over a decade's worth of work put into that vaccine. And during the time of that epidemic, these vaccines were already in advanced phases of study and research and human studies were already being conducted. So this was an opportune time to release those vaccines and, and ensure that, and, and they were actually very helpful in, uh, in getting that epidemic under control. We're not in that situation here with this novel coronavirus. I think the vaccine is, is, won't be available in time for this epidemic. We've had vaccine development for other recent emerging infectious diseases as well. So for example, we all remember the Zika virus epidemic and outbreak in Latin America and the Caribbean only a few years ago. Now there's been a huge push to make a Zika virus vaccine, uh, which would be extraordinarily helpful for people living in Zika virus endemic zones and also for travelers. And this still is not commercially available. Now, there's been a lot of progress, but it's not commercially available, and it's been years. Another example is chikungunya, which was imported to also to Latin America and the Caribbean from, uh, this was prior, prior just uh, endemic to Africa and uh, parts of Asia, but it was imported into Latin America and the Caribbean. It had a, there was a big outbreak in around 2013. And again, there's been some tremendous advances to make a chikungunya vaccine which again would be extraordinarily helpful to endemic settings and also for, for travelers, but this isn't commercially available as well. So I think we have to remember, it takes, it takes a lot of time to do the work. It takes a lot of time and money to make sure that it's, it's safe and, and effective before it can be deployed. And, uh, and I think it's going to be, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to predict how fast and how, how prioritized this will be, but I, I don't think it'll be ready within a year. Okay, so if a vaccine is not going to be our saving grace, what would you say is the most important thing for the public, physicians, and infection control uh, specialists to be doing at this time? I think what we need to do to help control this is just to continue being vigilant. So in other words, being updated about the information that's coming out of China, understanding the epidemiology, understanding the symptoms and what the what a compatible exposure history sounds like, 
and being vigilant to appropriately identify, screen, and, and test these patients. Uh, it's going to be very challenging if it continues to spread and, re, and if we see, for example, asymptomatic shedding and asymptomatic transmission. However, we have to do the best we can, and I think the, the things that are going to save us, the things that is going to control this, is already the things that we have at our disposal. So common sense things like encouraging hand hygiene, encouraging people not to go to work when they're sick, and then from the healthcare side is to use appropriate PPE. The PPE that's required for this is the same that we would use for other infections. So I think as long as physicians and health, other healthcare providers understand the necessity of doing the things that we should be doing anyway, then we will be able to properly protect our patients and all healthcare workers from spread of this virus. I think one of the most important things is working on improving our hand hygiene, our hand washing. Uh, it's not something that we excel in in healthcare. So we keep uh, focusing on the respiratory side of it and not really thinking about that that aspect. So for healthcare providers, we could definitely improve on that, and it's definitely an important measure to protect our patients and ourselves from new infections or even the old infections that we know about. Um, it's simple. And it would uh, be something that I would say the public should also be working on improving, especially when you've been in public areas. You should definitely be washing your hands. Um, and it's going to help us for future issues that arise. We never know when the next infectious disease is going to pop up. But the other part that's important is acknowledging how rapidly changing the landscape is and how you know, from one week to the next, things have really shifted and that we should all be aware of that. It's not unusual for this to be the case, for it to be rapidly changing, and we should not think of that as being disconcerting as much as this is my cue to keep on top of things. I think there's a few things. I think clearly this is an evolving epidemic in China, and we're getting changes day by day. So I think the general public, as well as healthcare providers, should really stay up to date with reputable resources. And uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada and the provincial Public health agencies have excellent, high-quality updates on their websites, and I think that's that's a great place to look for information. I think on a more broad level, we should also remember that, of course, we're all, we're, we're in the middle of an epidemic right now. This will pass, and there will be a period of time where there's, you know, relative lull in you know infectious diseases of of global health significance, and that is the time that we should be preparing for the next one. We know this is going to happen again, and if it's not going to be a coronavirus, it's going to be something else, and we really need to invest, not just as a country, but also as a globe, in early detection systems, in global communication and coordination, and in you know, epidemic uh, management systems. Uh, and we have to do this globally, because we know what happens on the far side of the world can quickly land on our doorstep overnight. So we have to be prepared. And and the right time to do this was yesterday. Well, thank you folks for joining me today. This has been really helpful and informative. Thank you for having us. Anytime. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Alon Vaisman, Dr. Susie Hota, and Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Dr. Vaisman is an adult infectious diseases specialist at the University Health Network in Toronto, as well as infection prevention and control physician and hospital epidemiologist. Dr. Hota is an infectious diseases specialist and medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network in Toronto.
Dr. Weisman and Dr. Hota are currently coordinating UHN's response to the 2019 novel coronavirus. Dr. Bogosh is an infectious disease consultant and general internist at the Toronto General Hospital. He collaborates with a team that models the spread of emerging infectious diseases. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>